This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In the final days of his administration, the governor has taken a step that could affect virtually everyone in this state. Democrat John Hickenlooper wants the Colorado Supreme Court to weigh in on what he sees as a constitutional conflict. It's between two amendments that deal with taxes. To help us understand this is a man who lived and breathed this stuff. Todd Salomon was budget director under former Governor Bill Ritter. He's currently CFO of the CU system. And we should be clear that he agrees with Governor Hickenlooper's move here. And Todd, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Before I have you explain this perceived budgetary conflict, why does it matter to the five and a half million people who live here? Oh, well, this can have a real impact on, on people and the services that they depend on. You know, in like local fire districts, when they don't have a, enough money to modernize their equipment or to pay firefighters what they need to be paid, it could impact the services that they can rely on and, and receive at the local level. At counties, you know, it, it, the county impact could impact their ability to maintain roads, to hire enough caseworkers for the child welfare system, things like that. You know, for schools, it could impact their ability to provide transportation to their students so they can get back and forth to schools. Um, it could impact their ability to buy new textbooks, their ability to pay teachers enough. And at the state level, it has an impact too. And, um, you know, and that means that there's less money available in the state budget for critical statewide needs like transportation, higher education, K-12 education, you know, water projects, things like that. Okay, so the effects of this could be far-reaching. And the conflict Hickenlooper sees is between two provisions in the state constitution. Tabor, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, the strictest anti-tax measure anywhere in the country, and the Gallagher Amendment, which dictates what percentage of state property taxes are paid by homeowners versus commercial property owners. Uh, with a split of 45-55. Help us understand, uh, in layman's terms, uh, what the alleged conflict is between these two measures. Sure. Well, when, Gall- when Gallagher was put into into the state constitution in, uh, I think it's 1982 or 1983. 82, yeah. 82. It, it, um, it put into effect that 45-55 split, where essentially... Uh, residential home values would comprise 45% of the total assessed value in the state, and commercial and others would be about 55%. And each year, the state legislature looks at the actual values and and determines whether or not they're meeting that 45-55 requirement. If they're not, the state legislature um, will run a bill to change the assessment rate, the rate at which uh, uh, residential property is assessed in Colorado to uh, adjust that mix so that it'll reduce the amount of of actual value that's actually that's taxed, and so um, and so it'll bring the the portion back into line. What happened with the passage of of um, of the Tabor Amendment in 1992 is that it it took that assessment rate. And it fixed, and and it didn't allow it to ever go back up. So if we have a year when uh, residential property is actually needing, when the assessed value for residential property is needing to go back up a little bit to abide by that forty-five fifty-five requirement, it can't. The other thing that used to be in in effect 
before the passage of TABOR is that local uh, special districts, counties, things like that could actually float their mill levy to maintain, to, to ensure that, that their revenues kind of stayed steady even if the resident, even if that assessment rate went down. When, when TABOR passed, that mill levy was no longer allowed to float. And so those local governments couldn't um, manage their their revenue in a way to to maintain revenues over time. I'll just say that Gallagher passed in 1982 out of concerns that residential property owners were being hit with too high of property taxes. So it was a way of bringing some certainty there. But it sounds like uh, you believe that the conflict here is is a, fundamentally a lack of flexibility budgetarily with uh, these two constitutional amendments. And I understand that you think rural areas are being hit especially hard. I do. And and I think folks can, can you know, uh, reasonable people can can have disagreements about, you know, the, whether or not Gallagher is a good thing. And Gallagher seemed to work pretty well in terms of its uh, ability to ensure that local governments could be funded, um, you know, over time. That, but when Tabor came into effect, that really threw a wrench into it. And I do think that rural rural governments and rural special districts are especially at risk because they're the ones who who uh, rely on these local tax dollars so much, and and where we don't see residential property values actually increasing. So mm-hmm. when that assessment rate goes down, they get hit really hard. I want to play you something from a CPR podcast called The Tax Man, uh, which featured Douglas Bruce. Uh, who, like yourself, is a former state legislator, uh, he's credited with creating Tabor. Uh, and this question you'll hear at the beginning comes from CPR's Rachel Esterbrook. Did you know the way that Tabor and Gallagher would interact yes. from the beginning? I put it right, right in here. It's specifically stated. There are no unintended consequences. None. Zip. Zero. As we said, Gallagher passed in 82. That's a decade before Tabor. So Bruce says he wrote Tabor knowing that it would interact with the other law in this way and bring down residential property taxes over time. Between Governor Hickenlooper and what we heard from Doug Bruce there, where's the disconnect? Well, the disconnect's in the Constitution. You know, despite what, what Douglas Bruce said, the Constitution, you know, Tabor did not uh, change the language in, in Gallagher in the Constitution. And so we have the old language from, from the Gallagher Amendment in the Constitution and the newish language from Tabor from 1992 in the Constitution. And they bump up against each other. And one doesn't let the other one function the way it was intended by the voters. And so I think it's a good question to ask. And and if he's so certain, then he, sh- he should be comfortable with the Supreme Court answering this question because um, because then he'll get the answer he he knows is is correct, but I I think it's confusing, and I think a lot of other people do too, and the consequences are real. I'll just reiterate, though, Doug Bruce, they're saying there were no unintended consequences, none, zip, zero. Uh, the, the Denver Post reports that the Colorado State Fire Chiefs requested the governor get the courts to weigh in on this. Uh, basically, he's relying on a special power of his office to do what exactly, Todd? I mean, can we say that the goal here is to let property taxes rise without a vote of the people? Fundamentally, is that what the court will consider or at least what the effect of a court's ruling might be? 
so I think the the court has has a bunch of different options. One, you know, its first option is it could just say that it won't answer the questions. Okay. The second would be to say that that uh, residential assessment rate could actually go up in years when it needs to to maintain that forty five fifty five split, like we that we talked about earlier. No. Another thing it could it could do is say that the is that that uh, mill levy the local mill levies could float up in communities that where where the residential assessment rate reduction is going to result in an actual reduction in in revenue for those communities so that and if if um, that was something that the court decided to allow then those communities could once again maintain current service levels but it's important to remember that current service levels are actually quite a bit lower than they used to be before the passage of Tabor. You know, this isn't just something that happened overnight, you know, slowly over the, you know, since 1992, these um, local governments have been been um, getting hit a little bit uh, every year. And so it's gotten to the point where I think a lot of them um, can't even maintain their the basic service levels that people rely on. And presumably, uh, a decision from the state's high court, if they decide to decide on this, uh, would allow for these things to happen without a vote under Tabor. I think that's a critical element here. Why don't we wrap up with uh, the timing of this? So you had the state fire chiefs uh, hoping the governor would make a request like this, but it's at the tail end of his eight-year term. I suppose a cynic might say this could be an unpopular move. He's waiting till his final days to do it. What's your read on why the governor's doing this now? Yeah, I don't, I, I don't buy that 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 argument. I think that um, it's gotten to the point where the assessment rate is being driven down so low that these communities have nowhere else to turn. I mean, when Gallagher first passed, the assessment rate was 21% for for um, um, residential property. Now it's projected to go all the way down to 6%. And that has just really hurt these local governments because they don't have the ability to respond anymore because of the passage of Tabor. And so I actually applaud the governor for, for asking the Supreme Court to weigh in on, on this issue so that we can get some clarity and hopefully provide some relief to these local governments. Obviously, a story will continue to follow. Todd, thanks for being with us. Okay, thank you. Todd Salomon is former Democratic state lawmaker and served as budget director under former Governor Bill Ritter. He's now CFO for the CU system, and he helped us understand what some perceive as a conflict in the state constitution, one that current Governor John Hickenlooper hopes to resolve. The effects of climate change will be both environmental and economic. That's the warning of a major new report from the federal government. It predicts the national economy will lose 10 percent of its value over the next century. The result of a longer and more widespread wildfire season, failed crops and damage to infrastructure. One place scientists already see the impact of climate change is America's oldest national park, The headline in the New York Times summed it up this way. Your children's Yellowstone will be radically different. Marguerite Holloway wrote this article. She's director of science and environmental journalism at Columbia. Welcome to the program. Thank you. You spent some time in Yellowstone to see what's happening firsthand. And one ecologist told you by the time his daughter is an old woman, the climate will be as different for her as the last ice age seems to us. 
That knocked the wind out of me when I read it. That was actually Dr. Michael Tursik, who's worked in Yellowstone for about 28 years and is very attuned to the changes in the ecology that he's observed in that time and very attuned to what is projected to happen in the future. Give us just a few examples of of what that transformation might look like, uh, given the signs that we are already seeing. One of the major changes that they talked about a lot was the reduction in snowpack. The reason they are very concerned about that is that snowpack is really a cornerstone of the ecosystem there. It affects everything, and that was quite striking to me because I hadn't sort of thought about the way less snow would have effects on all sorts of animals and plants and on how the landscape looked. I mean, fundamentally, with snowpack, we're talking about water. Chris, mm-hmm. everything relies on water. And uh, you point out that in the United States, Yellowstone is the only place where bison and wolves exist in large numbers. Uh, the park also has been important to the survival of trumpeter swans, elk, grizzly bears. And uh, while all those animals have found refuge in Yellowstone, they are affected by climate change. The reduction in snowpack and the warming temperatures mean that the winters are shorter and mean that the snow in the spring melts very quickly and sort of rushes out of the park. It doesn't stay in the park sort of in high elevations, under trees as long as it used to. And that sort of moisture later in the season and over the summer would feed the park and would keep the plants green and alive. Um, And that provides forage for species such as the elk. So some of the scientists are already seeing changes in the way elk are moving through the landscape. So they're not necessarily going up into the higher elevations. The grasses sometimes are already brown up there. And instead, they're sort of staying low. And they're spending more time, in some cases, on private land. So that obviously connects to another species, the human one, and tensions that might arise. These trumpeter swans have been on the decline. So that seems a complicated story. They don't really know where some of the trumpeters go when they overwinter, but they do know that they are seeing declines in the park and have been for a while. And they do also know that the birds have not been nesting. And the two biologists uh, I spoke with, Doug Smith and Lauren Walker, feel that part of the the reason for the lack of success in breeding with the trumpeter swans seems to be related to these spring floods where the water rushes out. It sort of floods wetlands. It floods nesting areas and prevents them from being able to establish a nest. A fire in, I think it was 1988, burned like a third Mm -hmm. of of Yellowstone. And there's concern that drier summers mean a greater threat of wildfire. Uh, And there, too, you have this whole interconnected system. Yes, that's true. And, And one of the scientists, Monica Turner, who's been looking at the recovery of forests after that 1988 fire, has seen that in some places where fires have come through again, burning, say, in 2016 or sometimes three times, that the forest can't get reestablished, that the young trees have not produced any cones 
And so when they're wiped out, no seeds are in the soil to regenerate the forest. And the concern is that if you just keep having wildfires, the forests are not going to be able to regenerate because historically the fires would come through, you know, and then the the forest would have 100 years or so to grow back. And their concern is that that's not going to be able to happen. My goodness, I wonder what the effect is on a on a grizzly bear or on birds or squirrels. The animals, I mean, obviously can move, but I think, uh, as I wrote about in the article, and, and this has been written about a lot, I think the the demise of the white bark pine in the West, um, which is really an, a critically important species, is linked to the warmer temperatures and to the attacks and survival of this mountain bark beetle. And that definitely has an impact in some ways on the grizzly bears. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're getting a picture of climate change in a very iconic part of America, of the West, and that is the changes Yellowstone is seeing, some of them quite rapid, uh, even faster than some researchers had anticipated. I want to say that, that Yellowstone was established in 1872. UNESCO World Heritage lists it as threatened by climate change. It has features like the Mammoth Hot Springs, which actually can help scientists track climate change. What, what do they look for there? Mammoth Hot Springs is, has one of the oldest weather stations in the U.S. And Yellowstone has, I think, several of the country's oldest weather stations. And having that long record um, is very helpful to see how things have changed, how temperature has changed. Of the rangers and the researchers that you spoke to, is it a question of trying to reverse some of what's happening or simply get comfortable with what will be a new park? How much energy do you spend on trying to stop these trends versus just adapting to them? I think that's really a critical question and one that is incredibly difficult to answer. Some scientists talked about having to think about the larger Yellowstone ecosystem and how animals that might need to move out of the park, say wolverines, how are they going to move further north because they're so dependent on snow and are there corridors and ways that they can move? And and some of them talked about trying to make management decisions based on the movement of various species. I wonder if there's one image or the plight perhaps of one creature or species that I don't know, you just can't get out of your craw. I think that what struck me was that in just three days of driving around in the park, we saw a wolf pack, we saw three grizzly bears, we saw herds of elk, we saw mule deer, we saw pronghorn antelope, we saw bald eagles. And, you know, the idea that this place that has been such an incredibly important refuge for so many species, can change so dramatically or will be changing increasingly dramatically. I found that very powerful and and very moving. And to hear researchers talking about the changes that they've seen in their lifetimes, also incredibly powerful and moving. Thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us. Oh, you're welcome. Marguerite Holloway is Director of Science and Environmental Journalism at Columbia. Her article for the New York Times is called Your Children's Yellowstone Will Be Radically Different about how climate change affects America's first national park. And we'll have a link to her story at CPR.org. 
After a break, the story of a remarkable Denver woman who is buried in an unmarked grave. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. They said, go, go see Dr. Dahl. I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio, for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis. He'd walk down the street to Nikolai Dahl's house, lie back in a deep, comfortable armchair, and Dahl would speak to him in his soft, hypnotic voice. You will begin to write your concerto. You will work with great facility. The concerto will be of an excellent quality. Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning. It starts in this still, dark C minor. But very quickly, it turns to a warm, comforting E major. For CPR's great composers wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. She was the daughter of freed slaves, and Lucille Berkeley Buchanan Jones seized the opportunities that weren't available to her parents. She became the first black graduate of what is now the University of Northern Colorado. That was in 1905. Then she became the first black woman to graduate from CU Boulder in 1918. A remarkable life, yet she was buried in an unmarked grave. And that did not sit well with author Polly Bugros McLean, professor at CU. McLean became fascinated, dare I say, obsessed with Lucille's story. And Polly, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. You spent years crisscrossing the country to learn everything you could about this woman who lived to 105. Why were you so captivated by Lucille? Um... Partly because uh, it started off with an article from a newspaper that said that a black woman who was educated, a daughter of the state of Colorado, was buried in an Omar grave, as you said. And I went, no, that's not correct in the, you know, as we're coming to the end of the 20th century. It has to be a mistake here. And uh, that started me on, on the quest. And the first thing I did was go to Fairmont Cemetery where she was buried. In Denver. In Denver. And um, looked her up and also looked up the fact that she had also bought uh, in uh, 1955, she bought her tombstone. She bought a spot to be buried and uh, she bought a headstone. Uh, and that was destroyed, and she lost that. You know, two years before she died, they would sell her plot. Huh. And you wanted, really, to understand the yeah. story of her life, uh, not just her death, and um, the fact that she really was not well-known. She was not well-known, and that what happens uh, to history often is that we tend to focus on those who make the nightly news, 
those who have uh, who, who we don't tell the full story of those who are the bottom of the historical plane. And I wanted to resurrect her and bring her out. As I mentioned, there are a lot of firsts in Lucille's life. So this first generation born after slavery, again, the first black graduate of what's now UNC, the first black woman to graduate from CU Boulder. And yet I understand that you struggle with the term first. I did. Uh, That there's a lot that word doesn't capture. What do you mean? Well, uh, first to begin with, first has some both negative and positive connotations. Okay. You know, the first world war that we've had, what how many people suffered and died. You know, you might say certain things came out as a result. But that first category really did bother me. Um, and it often shuts down further research. Once you've got your first, I mean, why go any further? Ah, why uh, look at all of the folks who paved the way to make that first possible? And, I think and they get lost in the annals of history. You know, the dustbins of history, as we call it. And that's what really triggered all of this. And yet there is some positivity as well associated with firsts. And there were some important firsts in Lucille's life. Yeah, it was. Um, She majored in German, the first African-American woman at the University of Colorado to major in German, which was quite impressive at that time. Why Quite important. Um, The black intelligentsia... um, prior to World War I, really had a great feeling and compassion for Germany. And apparently Germany related to them in ways that were not uh, clear or understood by others. So they went there to school. They studied in German. Du Bois was her idol. And he spent two years in Germany. As in W.E.B. W.E.B. Du Bois, Uh yeah. So the German became a real important, and the historically black colleges and universities in the United States, um, those that offered degrees and you know not just technical skills, uh, all had German departments. And today, there are two that still have German in uh, their their curriculum. Now she wanted to teach, but she could not land a teaching gig in Colorado. Right after her graduation from what is now UNC. Why not? Well, one of the things is that you got a free education and you had to pay back. So immediately she wanted to get a job. And the only job that she apparently could apply for was in Maitland, Colorado. Maitland? Maitland, Colorado. Where mining town about 163 miles away from here. Okay. Uh, she applied. In fact, the Maitland newspaper ran an article in 1905 about this very intellectual and bright black student that graduated from, which is now UNC. The teacher's college. That's right. um, uh, Would be applying for a job. Uh, (laughs) But it never happened. And she didn't waste any time. And that was one of her characteristics. She didn't take no for an answer. So immediately she found a job at Arkansas Baptist College in Little Rock and ended up going there right after graduation. Is it that she just found it difficult as a black woman to find a teaching gig in Colorado? Yes, because we would not. uh, That that was certainly a problem, even though we did have some black teachers before 1905. Huh. That was the, the only system. community in Colorado, though, that would even think about offering her a job. Yeah, Denver, for instance, would not. No, she could not get in anywhere else. And, so, and then they turned her down. They turned her down. Yeah. And then Colorado loses her for That's a right. time to Arkansas. For, 
for yeah, they lose her for about forty two years. Now, at CU Boulder, later on, she apparently did not walk at graduation. Right. Why not? Well, the uh, I interviewed um, one of her relatives that was still alive, and I was told that a young white ma- a female student came uh, up to her and says, Hi, Lucy, here's your diploma. I'll be your stand-in. And um, she never walked. Uh, Do you think that was about race? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. But it, it's hard to document some of this at this time other than the oral history that I've received from relatives about this. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Polly Bugras mclean of CU Boulder about her new book, Remembering Lucille. It is about Lucille Berkeley Buchanan Jones, who was the first black woman to graduate from CU Boulder, the first black graduate of what is now the University of Northern Colorado. And Polly, I want to make it clear that this story is about so much more than just Lucille, because your book opened my eyes to the years just after emancipation. I mean, I have to admit, I was naive to the difficulties uh, that freed slaves faced like Lucille's parents. Absolutely. Let me just read an excerpt from your book. Slaves' optimistic dreams were met with frightening realities. Freed blacks were often homeless, with few possessions, often unable to find work, and thus unable to purchase sufficient food. Then diseases such as smallpox, against which they had no immunity and access to treatment, took their toll. Many people became dependent on the federal government for survival. In the face of all this, many emancipated slaves returned to the only secure place they had ever known, meaning their masters. Yes. Meaning those plantations. And some plantations disappeared and others uh, still survived a little bit and you got a job there or you got a job from someone who bought the land nearby. But you will remember while chattel slavery ended they were still enslaved through the through the the system of sharecropping. Mm-hmm. That was another form of slavery. They had to do certain things. They had to give certain things away. So you have to understand that slavery didn't really end. It just continued in another shape, another form. My goodness, that must have been such a painful reckoning for someone who thought of themselves as newly free. Yeah, it was. To in fact not be. But I suppose Lucille's parents, they were able to persevere. Yeah, and I think that they represent an amazing generation because they would become the middle class when they come to Colorado. It didn't take Lucille's family a long time, about 10 years before they were achieving middle class status and had earned certain rights in the state. Remarkable, though, given the odds against them, stacked against them. Telling Lucille's story also allows you to shed light on on so much other black history in Colorado. I even hesitate to say black history. It's our collective history, of course. But you write about Dr. Justina Lorena Warren Ford. Mm -hmm. Who was she? She was the first uh, woman doctor, black woman doctor, uh, to get licensed in the state. And she delivered lots of babies and also delivered um, the uh, children of... uh, of uh, Lucille's sisters. Um, And, uh, you know, she was a marvelous woman and um, lived a great life here. 
Your book also taught me that the celebrated African-American poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar spent time in Denver. He was the toast of the town. Yep. Uh, what brought him here? Uh, tuberculosis. He was ill. And it was recommended he come here where he would be high altitude and treatment would be available. And he came and uh, his poetry was such so magnificent, you know, that he became the shining star and everyone wanted him in their living room to read poetry. White or black? Yes. wanted that. Yes. Yeah. And he, in fact, his next book, uh, he dedicated to uh, the person who owned Daniels and Fisher Department Store. Here in Denver. Here in Denver. The remnants of which is the May DNF Tower on the 16th Absolutely. Street Mall. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, back to Lucille. Her grandfather, I think on her mother's side, was a white slave owner. Yes. A testament to the fact that slaves weren't just there for labor, but often to satisfy the sexual desires of right. their owners. And I think this meant that Lucille had fair skin. You learned that later in life, Lucille professed a dislike of black people, of darker people. What? Yeah, that, that was her trick bag. Uh, <laughs> uh, she was in a situation where she wanted to get out. She was in a nursing in home. In a nursing home. She, home. she really was removed like from her home that her father built in the 1890s, which she lived in when she came back to Colorado in uh, the 1949. And she, they didn't know she had arrangements that she had set forward her life. She had hired a white male to take her shopping, um, to take her to the doctor, uh, to do odd jobs around the house, cut the lawn, cut the trees, do all the work. Uh, she was like the reversal of driving Miss Daisy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's the situation she lived under. And occasionally she would call the fire department when she heard a noise. But there was a reason for it because the kids next door were very no lo noisy. And as a result, that threw her off. So you think that this was a tool she used yes. to try to get out of the nursing home. But do you think as well that she had internalized some of the racism that she might have faced? I don't think so. Um, I don't read it that way. And the people that I interviewed that knew her didn't read it that way either. One of the things to recognize is that she was very much the other. And, and, and let me back up. The reason I also went into this was that her middle name was Berkeley. And I couldn't understand why would an emancipated slave family give a surname to their firstborn daughter in Colorado in 1884. That led me to figure out Berkeley. Where's Berkeley? Plantation, Edmund Berkeley, father of her mother. And, uh, found a fantastic letter that the mother wrote to her father. You never got to meet Lucille. She died in 1989. Right. And I'm always interested in the kind of relationship that develops between an author and the subject of a book who's deceased. I mean, how would you describe the connection that you feel to Lucille? Um, I think the, uh, the connection is that I see myself in Lucille with the issues that she faced. She faced issues of racism no matter what, wherever she traveled. Um, and that was back over 100 years ago. You know, and today some of those same issues arise with me. So there was that connection. We haven't gotten over racism in this country. It's still part of the American character. So I, I saw that. 
I saw the issues that she faced, you know, in schools in terms of being sexism that she faced as a woman and a black woman. So she was double jeopardy. Um, And that indeed sort of made me think about myself a lot as I was going through this. As a woman of color. As a a woman of color, yeah. On a college campus. Yeah. Uh, You did meet with the white side of Lucille's family. Yes. How was that? I mean, confronting the reality that their slave owner relative had also sexually abused his slaves. Well, the first time I met with one, it was in a library. And she was related uh, through, um, again, marriage. And I said to her, excuse me, ma'am, but I'm doing this book and here's the situation. And she says, oh, no, 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 that's absolutely wrong. You're absolutely incorrect. And then a white male standing nearby said, come now, Tiki, you know that they used to go with the slaves. Um, And that sort of softened her. And she invited me to her home, became my friend, sent me letters that she had. So it was that kind of thing. The last time I met with one was on the plantation of itself when I brought all the evidence to show the, to show the great, great, great granddaughter of Edmund Berkeley, the black side of her family. How'd that go? She never said she disagreed, but she never said she didn't. Oh. And it was a fantastic meeting on a plantation. You said at the beginning of our conversation that you're interested in telling history through the eyes of those who, who may not be celebrated, who may not be presidents or, or popes or, uh, you know, big figures that have lots of biographies written about them. You call that the idea of history from below. Yeah, which it comes out of a Marxist tradition of looking at history from below. And I, those, I, yeah. I understand you're working on a book about white people not well-known names, who stood up to Jim Crow-era racism. Yes, and that's called Invisible Protesters. And um, let me give you an example. Sure. Um, For example, um, it's hard to find the the data, so it takes a lot of effort and time because they never made the front page of a newspaper. Right. But here you have a young man by the name who's 20 years old, by the name of Howard Sheffield, And um, he considered himself a libertarian. Very interesting. And what happened is he took rotten tomatoes, I mean, sorry, rotten eggs. 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 Even worse. Even worse. To the birth of a nation in New York City and began pelting it at the screen as it came up with the word rotten, rotten, rotten. And at that point, they arrested him. A black lawyer was in the audience and saw this and did not know him, went to to the jail with him, and then ended up defending him. These are the kinds of stories you are unearthing. A final question. We have about 30 seconds remaining. Is Lucille Berkeley Buchanan Jones's grave at Denver's Fairmont Cemetery still unmarked? It's marked now with her name. Okay. Yes. Do you hope to have something more there at some point? Well, there are two other relatives in in that same spot that's unmarked. Something you'd like her to change, relatives, I imagine? relatives, yeah. Yes, something I like to work on. Thanks for sharing her story with us. Polly Bugros McLean is an associate professor of media studies at CU Boulder, where she has also served as director of women and gender studies. And her new book is called Remembering Lucille, A Virginia Family's Rise from Slavery and a Legacy Forged a Mile High. (laughs) 
Tonight, Denver could take the next step towards creating a place where drug users can shoot up without the fear of being arrested. The city council will take a final vote on a plan for a two-year pilot project to see if this can prevent overdoses and reduce crime. Vancouver already does this and has gotten global attention for its approach to illegal drug use. Listen to this from a Canadian podcast. Over the past couple of decades, the city has become a kind of laboratory for drug research. There are needle exchanges and mobile overdose clinics, supervised injection sites. There's even a pilot program for prescription heroin. Officials from Denver visited Vancouver earlier this year in anticipation of the measure now up for a vote. In January, I spoke with Jeff Turner, host of that podcast On Drugs from the CBC. I want to dive into some of the ideas that we heard about in in that snippet. But explain uh, first what a supervised injection site is. Yeah, it, it it probably sounds a little more dramatic than it actually is in real life. But if you could sort of picture, uh, or, uh, if you went to university, if you remember the study carrels in the library, the little desks with the sort of sidewalls yeah, yeah. along them. Imagine those, except they're made out of stainless steel and they have a mirror on the front wall of it. And imagine those in a semicircle, 12 or 13 of them. And in each one of those uh, carrels is somebody with the implements they need to inject drugs, typically heroin or other opioids or even uh, methamphetamine or cocaine. And in the room are nurses and other health folks to make sure that people are safe or safer in that situation than they might be out on the street where they where they would otherwise be doing the drugs. The idea there is to reduce, presumably, the number of overdoses with an acknowledgement that there are some people who, who simply aren't going to kick the habit and uh, better to have them injecting under safe conditions than, than as you say, on the streets. Right. And it's uh, the overdose is a, is a big factor. And I should point out that since 2003, when Inside opened, uh, there hasn't been a single overdose death at the site. So on that level, it certainly seems to be effective. But the other thing is they know from experience that often opioid users will do really unsafe things as as awful as using puddle water to mix the drugs and inject. They're in a dangerous uh, situation because they're alone, for example. But also it puts them in touch with people who might be their first avenue to help. There are nurses there. There's what they call a chill room where there are peer counselors, many of whom are other drug users or former drug users. So it's kind of an opportunity for people who maybe off the grid, off the radar, out in the margins, to have some sort of connection with the health system and maybe an opportunity to get on a path to recovery, or at least if they're going to continue using to be in a safer environment when they're doing it. There are some who who fear that it would encourage drug use. Was that a controversial thing to start up in Vancouver? Yeah, I think on some level, but at the time that it emerged, um, the context you'd have to understand is, Vancouver went through a a serious overdose epidemic in the 1990s, and that was also coupled with an explosion of HIV and hepatitis C in in Vancouver's downtown east side neighborhood, which is kind of notoriously racked with problems around addiction, Mm -hmm. uh, addiction of all sorts and poverty. And coupled with the fact that there was a serial killer on the loose, Robert Picton, uh, preying on women 
many of whom were themselves uh, struggling with substance addiction and selling their bodies on the street, there came to be this recognition in Vancouver that whatever we were doing up to that point didn't seem to be working. And there came a moment where people all across the political spectrum said, seemed to agree that whatever we'd been doing up to this point, it's not working. What can we do differently? And I think there was probably some of what you're describing at the time. But since then, it's remarkable how how broadly the idea has gained public acceptance here. Quickly describe this mobile overdose clinic for us. That really caught my attention from your podcast on drugs. What, 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 how does this work? Yeah, well, and that's the thing, and it shows you the limitations even of the, of the approach up to this point. Insight, just so you understand, for Insight, the, the supervised injection site to even operate, it requires a special exemption from Health Canada, the, the Ministry of Health uh, at the federal level. So it wasn't easy to make it happen, and it's not easy to make new ones happen, although they are starting to pop up around the country. So as this latest overdose epidemic started to peak and fentanyl started to appear on the streets, a group of activists, many of whom were involved in the initial push to get insight created, said, look, we need more than just that. We need other, maybe more impromptu temporary uh, setups. And so what you see now is, unlike Insight, which is a fixed location, uh, purpose-built, you have uh, a couple of places in the downtown east side where there's literally a construction trailer and a couple of pop-up tents. And people, essentially it's uh, people with addictions helping other people with addictions in a much less formal environment than you see at Insight. They don't have nurses. It's basically a peer counseling situation, but it does seem to help. At least there's somebody there when, when somebody does overdose, there's somebody there to help them. And another um, way to make response more nimble, I understand in Vancouver is that pharmacies are handing out free naloxone kits to like general citizens, non-drug users perhaps. um, So that you've got lots of people in the community who are deployed to reverse an opioid overdose. Yeah, Uh, it's pretty extraordinary. And it's funny you mention that because just the other day, uh, we were on our way to some, my family and I were in the car on our way to some Christmas gathering or another, and we noticed a group of teenage girls crossing the street, just the most ordinary-looking high school kids you could imagine. And two of them had naloxone kits dangling from their backpacks. And puts in mind a story from Victoria just on the other side of, uh, of the water from us here where a 16-year-old girl saved a, a person from overdose because she had a Narcan kit with her. So there's, <laughs> I think that speaks to the extraordinary degree to which harm reduction and uh, the idea of taking on addiction as a public health concern as opposed to a criminal or a moral uh, issue has, has really taken hold here. And finally, Jeff Turner of CBC Radio in Vancouver, host of the podcast On Drugs. What about prescription heroin? Uh, Help us understand uh, just briefly how that might change the equation. Yeah, that's really remarkable. I guess that's the natural uh, next step, depending on where you how you see these things. But there's a clinic called the Crosstown Clinic, which is just two blocks from Insight, the supervised injection 
site. And at Crosstown, they actually prescribe and administer a form of prescription heroin. Uh, they also offer hydromorphone, which is a another opioid option. And the idea is to not only have people injecting in a safer situation, but to have them injecting drugs which are known to be clinically safe um, and to help people break out of the cycle. Because for so many people on drugs, whether they're uh, using the drugs in safer circumstances, they're still engaged in all sorts of criminal activity and what have you just to attain the drugs every day. So it's a very interesting experiment to see what happens. There's only, I think, about 90 people involved in the program right now, although they're looking to expand it. But to see what happens when people who are normally desperately putting all their energy into finding and maintaining the drugs to support the habit, when you break that cycle and just provide it for them. We have about a minute left Is this working? Do you have some evidence that this is turning the tide in Vancouver? That is the million-dollar question. And I think it's very hard to measure right now because I think as promising as the results have been in the first 15 or so years of the existence of Insight, for example, the problem of overdose and opioid addiction has grown enormously out all around Vancouver. Hmm. So it's very difficult to say. I think maybe with a bit of catch-up, we'll we'll start to see. And as they pop up around the, uh, the country, we'll have a better sense. But even the mayor here, who is a big supporter of the harm reduction approach, last year he said, it just feels like we're treading water. So I think there are measurable ways that you can say it's been very effective. It's reduced deaths. It's reduced the spread of HIV but it's not like it's a silver bullet. That is Jeff Turner. He's with CBC Radio in Vancouver and host of the podcast On Drugs. We spoke earlier this year. Tonight, the Denver City Council is scheduled to take a final vote on a two-year pilot program which positions Denver to become the first city in the nation to open a legal injection site for IV drug users. Now, even though it's a city ordinance, the Colorado legislature would also need to vote on this because it would be in conflict with current state law. Such a vote may be more likely now that Democrats are in control of the statehouse. One more hitch, the U.S. Justice Department has indicated it might prosecute cities that approve injection sites. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.